As we prepare to open God's word, let's pray and ask that he would bless it to us. Let's pray. Blessed Lord, who has caused Holy Scripture to be written for our learning, grant that we may hear, read, learn, and inwardly digest them, that through the comfort of your holy word we may embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of everlasting life, which you have given us in our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. You may be seated. Well, there's many things we could say about that psalm, but if it makes one thing clear, it's that salvation is from God alone. And that's something that Paul emphasizes as well in our sermon text for this evening. So if you would, please turn with me to uh, the book of Colossians, chapter 2, and we'll uh, be considering this evening verses 6 through 15, chapter 2, verses 6 through 15. Colossians chapter 2, beginning in verse 6 and reading through verse 15, and pay careful attention for this is God's own word. Paul writes, therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which also you were raised with him through faith in the, in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Thus far the reading of God's word. May he bless it to us. Well, this evening we come to Lord's Day 16 in the Heidelberg Catechism. And as we're still in that long section of the Catechism that considers the various articles of the Apostles' Creed, our, uh, our Lord's Day this evening considers in particular three articles of the creed. He died, was buried, and descended into hell. And it also gives a couple of other uh, questions and answers that are related to, the, to that teaching uh, about those articles. And one of those questions and answers asks, what further benefit does Christ's death have for you, Christ's death on the cross? And this is uh, the question that I want to take up in particular this evening is the Catechism's teaching on this question and answer. Because in our passage for this evening, Paul uses the cross in a very similar way to the way our Catechism speaks about the cross in question and answer 43, about speaking about what is the what further benefit does the cross have for you? We, uh, we, we see here how Paul uses this in a very uh, specific situation, a particular situation of a Colossian church that was being faced with some sort of false teaching that Paul is writing this letter against, a false teaching that we don't know uh, exactly 
what it was, what these people were saying, but we know that the fundamental nature of it was that they were denying the sufficiency of Christ. The sufficiency of Christ for salvation, for growth in the Christian life, for living a holy life. Whatever the case, they were saying Christ is not enough. You need to add something to Christ or replace him with something. He's not enough. And uh, we'll see in our passage some more specific aspects of this false teaching. But Paul, one of the ways he combats this is he reminds them of the great benefit of the cross for them, the great benefit of being united to Christ in his death in a similar way to the way our catechism speaks about the further benefit of the cross. Paul reminds us of the sufficiency of Christ's salvation from beginning to end. And so we'll think about how this passage from Colossians 2 supports the teaching of our catechism, particularly question and answer 43 and a couple other questions and answers from this Lord's Day along the way also. So we'll think about this passage this evening uh, from Colossians in three points. First, walk in him which is really verses 6 and 7 of the passage, and then uh, filled in him, verses 8 through 10, and finally alive in him, verses 11 through 15. Walk in him, filled in him, and alive in him. Those will be our three points for this evening. Our first point, walk in him. This uh, passage in Colossians 2, uh, 6 through 15, especially verse 6, several commentators have called this passage the heart of the book of Colossians, or the hinge of the book of Colossians. And the reason they call it that is because in verse 6, we really have, in very general terms, a summary of Paul's entire argument in the book of Colossians. In verse 6, he says, As you received Christ Jesus the Lord, walk in him. The first half of the book, or the opening of the book, I should say, from the beginning through really chapter 2, verse 5, is... Paul is talking, it can be generally summarized as receiving Christ as Lord. You may remember uh, in Lord's Lord's Day 13, I think it was, um, a month or so ago when I had the opportunity to uh, exhort on Colossians 1, that that wonderful uh, Christological poem from Colossians 1, Paul talks to them there about the person of Christ, this uh, Lord over the uh, creation and over the new creation, this is the one who they have received, this is the one in whom they have salvation. And then uh, the body of the letter, which really begins here in chapter 2, verse 6, can be generally summarized as uh, walking in Christ. Now this language of walking is a common, is common scriptural language that the biblical authors will use, and uh, one of the most, perhaps one of the most, uh, Well-known examples of it is in Psalm 1, where we read at the beginning, blessed is the man who walks, not in the counsel of the wicked. The man, the happy man, is the one who doesn't live his life, in other words, according to the advice of wicked people, is really what that's getting at. And Paul is using this language of walking in a very similar way here to talk about living your life, is what he means by this. He's telling them, he's exhorting the Colossians, and he's exhorting us to live their lives, to live our lives in Christ, to live our lives in union with the one who is the Lord over creation and the new creation. And he says to them, live your lives in 
union with Christ as, or in the same way as, you received him. And so we can ask the question, how is it that Paul presents the Colossians, how is it that they received Christ? Well, again, we can return back to chapter 1. And you may remember after that poem, there's a section where Paul speaks directly to the Colossians. He addresses them directly. He says, you. And in that section, he exhorts them. He says to them, continue in your faith. In other words, it's by faith that they received Christ. This is how they were united to the one who is the Lord over creation and new creation. It's by clinging to him, trusting in him, looking to him in faith. And so Paul is saying here in verse 6, you received Christ by faith. Continue to live your life by faith alone, in union with Christ alone. Now this in him of verse 6 is the first of a whole slew of union language that Paul uses in this passage. In him and with him, Paul says over and over and over again, and what he's emphasizing in using this language is that whatever happens, whatever has happened to Christ will surely happen to the one who is united to him, to us who are united to him. Now in verse 7 of this passage, we see a series of kind of short, quick phrases that Paul uses to defend or further explain this teaching of verse 6. And the first couple of phrases that he uses, he gives us some nice imagery to help us understand how is it that we're able to obey this exhortation to live our lives by faith alone in union with Christ. And Paul says it's because we've been firmly rooted in Christ. In other words, Christ is the firm foundation of the Christian life. But he also says it's because we're being built up in him. He's not only the firm foundation, the one in whom we're rooted, but he's also, we might say, the structure of the whole building. He's the one in whom we're being built up. The Christian life is never, never reaches a point of maturity, of being built up where it leaves Christ behind, is what Paul is getting at here. Christ is always its defining feature. And then Paul says, established in your faith, or we might also translate that being strengthened in your faith. So united to Christ is the uh, foundation of the Christian life. It's the, he's the one in whom we're being built up. And it's in this context, Paul says, that our faith is strengthened. It's as we are clinging to Christ and looking to him, this is where our faith is strengthened. Now notice kind of interestingly here in these uh, opening three um, phrases of verse 7 that Paul doesn't mention who is doing these things. He doesn't say root yourself in Christ and you're building yourself up in Christ and you're establishing yourself in your faith. He doesn't say who is behind these things. And oftentimes in scripture when the authors leave out the agent behind an action, what they want you to understand is that the action is being done by the one who is the cause of all things. By God. They don't need to say who it is because we know who is behind all things, who is the ultimate cause. It's God who roots us in Christ through faith. It's God who builds us up in Christ. It's God who strengthens our faith. 
And it's in Christ alone that God establishes this firm foundation of salvation. It's in Christ alone that he grants this growth in the Christian life, this growth in holiness and in maturity, in love for God and for one another. It doesn't come by graduating from Christ to something more advanced. It comes by clinging to him. Paul says we ought to live our lives in Christ in the same way that we received him, by faith. And this is how God promises to give salvation and growth. Now Paul adds here two other short uh, phrases that help to explain what he said in verse 6. He first says, just as you were taught. In other words, live your lives in Christ just in the way that you were taught. Now at the very beginning of the letter of Colossians, we read about how the Colossians were taught. Paul says that a faithful minister came to them. He sent a faithful minister to them, Epaphras. He preached the gospel to them. He taught them how they were to live in light of this gospel. God has given us faithful ministers who preach the gospel to us to proclaim his word, to encourage and comfort and convict through this word. And Paul says here that we ought to listen to those faithful ministers, that we ought to live our lives in Christ as we are taught by these faithful ministers that God has given to us. And Paul adds, lastly, abounding in thanksgiving. And we shouldn't too quickly skip over this, this last phrase. As Paul gives this opening exhortation of the body of his letter, as he uh, is giving all this explanation of what it means to walk in Christ, the thing he wants ringing in our ears at the end of this section this first section of the passage, is abounding in thanksgiving, overflowing thanksgiving. Thankfulness to God for all he has done and all he is doing. This is what should characterize the Christian life, is a life of thankfulness. And in some ways, thankfulness is the best antidote to seeking things instead of or uh, in addition to Christ for salvation or growth. Because as we give thanks to God, as we uh, give thanks, as we are thankful to him and actually thank him in prayer, we keep these things always before our minds. We keep before our minds the salvation which God has won, the great magnitude of this salvation, how incredible it is. And we're less likely as we have these things before our minds to want to turn to other things, to think that we need fulfillment in other ways for spiritual growth or salvation will realize more that these things are not necessary. Overflowing thankfulness, Paul says, is what should characterize the Christian life. So in these opening verses, Paul has made clear for us that the Christian life is one lived by faith alone, in union with Christ alone. It's a life of overflowing thankfulness to our God for all he has done for us. And it's in this context of union with Christ, not something else, not replacing Christ or adding to him that God gives growth. There's no need to add to him or replace him. And now as we turn to our second point, uh, which will cover really verses 8 through 10 of our passage, Paul gives a specific application of this general command to live our lives in union with Christ, a 
specific application of this command in verse 8. He says, see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit. This is strong and colorful language that Paul uses here when he talks about being taken captive. This word that he uses has the idea of carrying someone off as spoils or plunder, carrying them away into slavery. So Paul is saying here, don't let yourselves be made slaves to this false teaching, to any kind of false teaching. As we talked about in uh, the last time, uh, in the last passage of Colossians, Colossians 1, the, the uh, believers had been, Paul told them they'd been taken out of the kingdom of darkness, out of bondage to, uh, to sin and death. And he's saying, don't return to this slavery that you've been rescued from. I really like the way that Calvin translates this verse. He says, uh, see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy, which is nothing more than empty deceit. And what Calvin says, which I think is right, is that Paul is not opposed here to philosophy in general or teachings in general. What he's opposing is philosophy, which is empty, which has no content, nothing useful associated with it, nothing of value, which is deceitful, which seeks to lead people away from the truth. This is what Paul is warning us against here, and he gives three more specific characterizations of this philosophy that help us to understand more clearly what he is warning against. He says that it's according to human tradition. In other words, it's something which comes from human imagination, not from God's word. It's according to the elemental spirits of the world, he says. Now, if you're looking at your ESV, you may have a note that says this could also be translated elementary principles of the, wor of the world. And I think for several reasons, that's probably the better translation. But either way, whichever translation we take here, Paul's point is clear. This is adding something or replacing Christ with something, whether it's heavenly spirits of some kind, whether it's rules that are incompatible with living in union with Christ. This is something that is not, uh, that's, that's contrary to that. And then he gives us the most important characterization of this philosophy. He says it's not according to Christ. This is the fundamental problem with this philosophy is that it's contrary to Christ and to his gospel. So this is what Paul is telling us to, to avoid, to be on the lookout for, to, to not allow ourselves to be taken off by and made slaves by is this kind of teaching, teachings which have no helpful content, which tend to deceive and lead away from the truth of Christ and his gospel. This is the kind of thing the Colossians were facing, and we face some of the same types of things in our day. This would include made-up criteria for being a good Christian, right? True Christians vote for this particular political candidate or this political party over another. This would be made-up ways of growth in the Christian life, right? You do these five simple steps, you give a lot of money to my ministry, and then you'll have the Christian life you always dreamed of. This would include false religions or religions which masquerade as Christianity, right? Christ is great, but really what Christ wants is for you to be happy. And so as long as you're doing what makes you feel good, then that will be your salvation with or without Christ. 
These things are human inventions. They're not found in God's word. They're empty. They have no helpful content. They're deceitful and not according to Christ. They detract from living by faith alone in Christ alone. And they're not how true salvation or growth in holiness comes. Now in verses 9 through 10, Paul gives the reason for obeying this command. Why should we avoid these empty and deceitful philosophies? He says it's because in Christ, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you are filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. All the fullness of Christ, all the fullness of deity, excuse me, dwells in Christ bodily, Paul says. So any kind of false teaching that claims to have some kind of access to God instead of or uh, in addition to Christ cannot possibly be true. Christ is the way to God. All the fullness of God dwells in him. He is himself God. And Paul says, are you worried about rulers or authorities, whether earthly or spiritual? Christ created them. You're united to the one who is Lord over them because he created them. He said that in chapter 1. In verse 10, Paul says that we're filled in Christ. In other words, we have all we need in Christ. There's nothing lacking in him that we might need to make up by adding something to him. Christ is completely sufficient, Paul says. And as we turn to our third and final point for this evening, Paul expands on this sufficient salvation. He gives further explanation of what this fullness that we have in Christ is. And as Paul turns to describe this sufficient salvation that we have in Christ, he begins in what might strike you as kind of an odd way. He says, in him you were circumcised with the circumcision made without hands by the putting off of the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. What in the world is Paul talking about here? Well, I think Paul is doing something really interesting here with the imagery of circumcision. Paul, of course, knew the Old Testament scriptures extremely well. He knew as well after his conversion that all of scripture pointed to Christ and including the, the sign of circumcision, which is what he uses here. And he's using this sign to speak to new covenant believers about the sufficient salvation which they have in Christ. So in order for us to understand this, we need to think for a moment about, uh, about, the, about the sign and how it's presented to us in the Old Testament. You know, circumcision was the sign, as you probably know, of the Abrahamic covenant. And as part of that covenant, God promised land, he promised descendants, and he promised that Abraham would be a blessing, that all the families of the earth would be blessed through him. And even as Abraham knew at that time, however vaguely, these things pointed to greater and heavenly realities, right? Hebrews 11 tells us that, that Abraham uh, looked for the city which is to come, a heavenly city, ultimately pointing to a restored and renewed people and a restored and renewed creation. And in Genesis 15, you may remember that covenant-making ceremony when God himself walked between those halves of the animals. It was a common ceremony in the ancient Near East, but usually the lesser party would walk between the halves of the animals. Instead, it was God who did that. 
It was God who took upon himself the responsibility to fulfill the obligations of that covenant. In effect, what he was saying was, if that covenant is broken, I will become like these animals that are split in half, these severed animals. And Abraham, we're told in Genesis 15, looked to God's promises in faith, and it was counted to him as righteousness. And Paul tells us in Romans 4 that circumcision was then given as a seal of this righteousness. The sign of circumcision was given as a seal of that righteousness that Abraham has had as he looked to the promises of God in faith. In Genesis 17, when God gave that sign of circumcision to Abraham, he commanded him that he must perform this sign, that he must circumcise all his descendants, and that any uncircumcised male would be cut off from his people. He'd be considered a covenant breaker. And this is the fundamental symbolism of circumcision, isn't it? It's always helpful to think about what the symbolism of any given sacrament is. With baptism, right, it's a washing. With circumcision, it's cutting off is what it symbolizes. This physical cutting off of circumcision points to a spiritual circumcision, a circumcision of the heart. In other words, a life of faith and obedience to God. But there's a bit of a disconnect there, isn't there? Because Abraham and all his descendants were sinners. They couldn't circumcise their own hearts. They couldn't live this life of faith and obedience to God on their own. They couldn't earn for themselves the blessings that were promised, the promised land of God, the blessing of salvation. Someone needed to earn these blessings for them so that these promises could come by faith alone. And so this cutting off symbolism of circumcision does not just symbolize curse for the covenant breaker who is cut off from the people of God, but also blessing for the person, for the person like Abraham who trusts in the promises of God, who believes that these promises of God are for them. Isaiah prophesied about the one who would undergo this cutting off curse on behalf of his people. He was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. In his death, Jesus Christ was cut off. He underwent this curse of the covenant. He became like those severed animals of Genesis 15. And this is why the promises of Abraham can come to us by faith. Because Christ, who was not himself a covenant breaker, took those curses of the covenant upon himself. This is what our catechism says in question and answer 40. Why did Christ have to suffer death? Because nothing else could pay for our sins except for his death. So all who believe in Christ undergo these curses of the covenant which we deserve in him instead of having to undergo them ourselves. And this is what Paul is talking about in verse 11 of our passage. He says that as Christ's flesh was put off in death, as he became like those animals from Genesis 15, as he was undergoing the curse, which covenant breaking deserves, our flesh, our old self, our self which is ruled by sin and in slavery to sin is, is put off, is removed in union with him in his death. 
as we are united with Christ in this cutting off in his death, we are justified. We undergo that curse of the covenant in him. And therefore, since we undergo death with him, we must undergo also resurrection with him. We must also be raised with him. We are given his righteousness. Forgiveness of sins and righteousness are ours in him. And we are also regenerated. We are born again as we are united with his death. Our old self is put off. It is stripped off from us, cut off from us. And the new self is raised in its place. And in verse 12, Paul says, if you want to know where you can look to know that these promises are for you, Look to your baptism. Circumcision was a bloody sign that pointed forward to the bloody death of Christ. But now that this death has been accomplished, it's been replaced by baptism, which is a non-bloody sign looking back on his death. These same realities, though, are signified and sealed to us in our baptisms, our burial with Christ. Our catechism says that By his burial, we know that Christ truly died. And so the fact that we're buried with Christ, we know for sure that our old self, our self in slavery to sin, has really died. It will never return again. And because we have died with Christ, by faith we will also be raised with him. This is the further benefit of the cross that our catechism is talking about, that our old man is crucified and put to death and buried with Christ so that the evil desires of the flesh may no longer rule us, but that instead we may offer ourselves as a sacrifice of thanksgiving to him. In verses 13 and 14, then, of our passage, Paul repeats the same pattern of death to life in Christ. You were dead, he says, in your trespasses and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, but you received the circumcision, the spiritual circumcision that we just talked about. You were made alive in Christ because God forgave you all of your trespasses. And then in verse 15, the last verse of our passage, we get Paul's interpretation of what took place on the cross and in Christ's resurrection. He says it was a victory. That in the moment when Christ looked the weakest and as if he had failed, God was disarming the rulers and authorities through him. The imagery that Paul is drawing on here in verse 15 is from a Roman victory parade. One commentator says that it's from a Roman triumph in which a victorious general led his troops through the city with the spoils of war displayed for all to see and the defeated enemy paraded before his chariot. This is what God did through the death and resurrection of Christ. He defeated and shamed all the enemies of Christ and his church. Because as Christ was being cut off as a covenant breaker, he was winning a people for himself. A people out of bondage to sin and out of slavery to death and hell. And in his resurrection, he was publicly and openly vindicated. The one who has the keys of death and Hades, the one whom death could not hold. Brothers and sisters, we have such a full and sufficient salvation in Christ. We are united by faith to the one in whom all the fullness of deity dwells. 
What else could we possibly need? What else could we add to Christ or replace him with for our salvation or for growth in our spiritual lives? This is the benefit of the cross, that our old self has been crucified and put to death and buried with Christ, never to return. And our new self has been raised with him. We don't need to turn to empty or deceitful teachings for fulfillment or growth. It's in Christ alone, not through anything that humans have dreamed up, that our old self is, uh, that we have died to our old selves, and that we are new creations in Christ, and we live new creation lives in him. So as you have received Christ by faith, continue to walk in him, because in him you have all that you need. Amen. Let's pray. Our gracious God and Father, we thank you for the sufficient salvation which we have in Christ. Thank you that through Christ's cross and resurrection we have died to our old selves and we are new creations. Thank you that we see this signified and sealed for us in our baptisms. And what a blessing it is that you have given us visible, tangible signs and seals of your grace toward us. Thank you that we do not need to turn to empty and deceitful teachings for growth and holiness, but that you give us all we need by faith alone, in Christ alone. Please strengthen us in this faith. Help us to cling to Christ more each and every day, and help us by this faith to live our lives in him. All of this we pray in Christ's precious name. Amen.